I really appreciate the uh, heart of that video because it really captures what we're endeavoring to do with um, our current sermon series, Transforming the Next Generation, and with the stewardship campaign uh, by that same name. And so to me, it's been, been super exciting that we've been able to um, uh, put that together and just cast, cast some vision for what that's, what that's like. So I want to invite you this morning to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 6, 24 through 34. And uh, this morning, we're going to talk about the idea of confident generosity, confident generosity from Matthew 6, 24 through 34. Let me open us up with, with a word of prayer. Father God, we want to say thank you for your word. It is true. It is authoritative. It is inerrant. And it's our delight, Lord, to dig into it because your word to us is life, and we're grateful, Father, for, for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, I want us to think about uh, the concept of true confidence. And if you guys could turn the lights on a little bit so that I could see everybody. I, 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 you can see me, but I can't, I can't see you very, very well. Uh, I want to talk about the, uh, the idea of, of confidence. And what I want to say is a genuine confidence always has two qualities to it. If you told me, for instance, that you were a confident golfer, I would know two things about you. I would know that you have practiced your game, and I would also know that you've encountered humility along the way. Golf is about practice, it's about humility. If you're gonna be a great golfer, it does not mean you always avoid the rough and you always avoid the sand traps. No, if you're going to be a great golfer, what that means is that you have been in the rough, you know how to shoot out of the rough, you've been in the traps, you know how to shoot out of the traps, you know how to solve the problems with your game. So confidence is the product of practice and humility. I'm sure you get that, but let me give you one more illustration just uh, for the sake of understanding. If you told me that you were a confident pianist, I would know two things about you. You practiced, and there's humility. You practiced scales until your fingers were in such pain that you wanted to quit. You also know the humility of getting into a situation where you didn't quite do it right. Or your version of the recital and the conductor's version of the recital were two different things. Confident, confidence is something that is the product of humility and practice. That's true of anything, really. If you were to say, I'm a confident parent, or a confident photographer, or a confident gardener, I would know that there is practice involved with that and humility. The same thing applies to this idea of managing money as a follower of Jesus. If you say, I am a confident money manager, and I'm confidently generous, I would know two things about you. You practiced, and there's been humility. Now, I say all that because the Bible says two sort of paradoxical things about our finances. And most of us don't pause to take the time to think about this. First of all, the Bible says that our finances are tangible. You can put them on a spreadsheet. You can put them into a software program. You can see them in black and white, you can evaluate your finances. They're tangible. The Bible also says that finances are supernatural. 
We serve a sovereign God. We serve a providing God. We serve a God who can break through. And the tangible nature of finances, it being in black and white, and the, and the supernatural nature of finances are, are paradoxical. How do those things work together? It's a mystery. But one of the wonderful things about growing in the Christian life is that we get to encounter God in the mystery of the tangible and supernatural nature of finances. And if we're going to grow as faithful givers, we're going to live joyfully in that mystery. And the problem lies in the idea that if, we, if we're too much into the tangible nature and not enough into the supernatural nature, we tend to be fearful and afraid that, if, that God's not going to provide, especially if we, if we, we give. And so we're left with a mystery and a challenge. The mystery is how do, we, how do we live in the paradoxical nature of finances? And the challenge is how do we trust God in that area? Now look, Jesus thought this was so important that he felt that it was a matter of basic discipleship. That's why he teaches about this in the Sermon on the Mount. Both in Matthew's version and Luke's version, he teaches about stewarding money and especially giving money. And so we want to look at that this morning as we continue in, in, this, in this series. So I want to start off with the, with the way this, this passage begins. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the others, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, we, we see from this a, a beginning concept, a beginning principle. And if I'm going to be a confident, confidently generous person, it's going to be in with a foundational choice. And the choice is, I'm going to serve God and not money. I'm going to serve God and not money. That's my, that's my foundational choice that's I'm, that I'm going to make. All right, let's see the one again. No one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. In the context, Jesus has been talking about laying up treasures in heaven versus laying up treasures on the earth. Now, when he said that, you have to think about what the house looked like in the first century. Everybody lived in these houses that were very small, like maybe the size of your garage. And in all those houses, there was a storeroom at some place in the house, and that storeroom was a lockbox, and that lockbox was your wealth, the equivalent of your IRA, the equivalent of your stock portfolio, the equivalent of your special valuable things. And they were not very, they were not very secure. So if somebody wanted to come in and break into your house and get your stuff, could they do it easily? Yes, they could. So wealth was not very secure in the ancient world. And so people were always anxious about their money. And so what Jesus uh, says is that there's a way to think about savings and money that's more secure. You can lay up treasures in heaven. Now, that was a shocking thing because they didn't have a firm understanding about how resurrection worked in the first century. They believed in it. They just didn't know quite how it worked. They know that Elijah and, uh, and Enoch, you know, went bodily up to heaven. They knew that Job talked about seeing God in the flesh. They didn't understand how resurrection works. So to think about 
being resurrected in a physical heaven with material assets in that heaven was really a mind-blowing thing. He's saying you can give and invest money into ministry and you're laying up treasures that you will see again in heaven. That was a mind-blowing piece of information. So Jesus is encouraging his disciples to think about money differently. It is a tool that can be used for eternity, not a God to dominate your life and over which you feel anxious. It's a tool, not a God. And verse 24 asks, in verse 24, Jesus asks us to make a choice about how we're going to think about money. Is it going to be a God whom we serve or is it going to be a tool by which we serve God? Now, here's the question that was on everybody's mind when they heard this. Okay, so let's suppose that I serve God and not money. Let's suppose that I lay up treasures in heaven. Could it be that in my generosity, I would get into trouble financially and be in serious want. Is that a possibility? So notice the phrase in verse 25. Therefore, I tell you. Therefore, I tell you. What's going to happen is that the, the assumption is, okay, so you know, what if I'm generous? Am I going to be in any sort of want? Now, Jesus wants to address that. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, about your body, about what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now, this is amazing what Jesus does here because he is going to repeat commands about worry five times. Notice notice how he does this. Don't be anxious about your life. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? Why are you anxious about clothing? Therefore, don't be anxious about what we we shall eat. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. I don't know any other place in the Gospels where Jesus repeats a topic five times in ten verses. He obviously wants us to not feel anxiety over money. Now, why would he do that? Well, have any of you felt anxiety over money this week? Yeah, we all do. That's like a major source of our anxiety. And Jesus wants to especially remove that idea. Don't be anxious about money. Now, let me tell you about what, he's, what, he's not, what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying don't have legitimate concern over your finances. There is a time for legitimate concern over finances, or over, over anything. Legitimate concern drives you to action. Here's a, an example. Paul says, apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul has legitimate concern about the health of the various churches that he's planted. Legitimate concern is legitimate concern. Let's say that you have a, a son who's playing soccer, and that son hits another player, falls on his head, you rush out to the field, his eyes are rolling back in his head, should you have legitimate concern? Yes, call a doctor. 
That's legitimate concern. Jesus is not talking about legitimate concern. What, he, what he's talking about is the obsessive worry over money. The idea that if I, if I just had a little bit more, I'd be, I'd be okay and my worries would vanish. It's not true. Uh, I've, I've told you about this before, but when Cindy and I were in the business school at Southern Methodist University, we had a teacher who was an amazing teacher. His name was Don Jackson. And Don, we got to know Don Jackson in, in college, but we also got to know him afterwards as, he ta- as, as sometimes um, I would teach at the church he went to. And um, Don Jackson said this. He said, I've coached people who earn half a million dollars a year, five million dollars a year, $50,000 a year, and $5,000 a year. He says, what's true of every person that I, that I coach? They're all worried about money. Doesn't matter how much you have, the one thing they're all concerned about is money. Whether it's five million, half, half a million, $50,000, that doesn't matter. He said, everybody's concerned about money. And the same way, it doesn't matter about the state of the economy. You know, we, we're in an economy that is very good right now in many ways. Very low unemployment. Stock portfolios are higher. IRAs are, are higher. It, it, this is a good, a good economy in, in many ways. So why is it that Forbes, Fortune, Wall Street Journal are all featuring articles about worry over money? It's because no matter how much you have or how good the economy is, Worry over money is universal to all of us. And Jesus gives the reason why we don't serve money, but rather serve God, why we don't be super anxious over money, but rather worship and serve God with our finances. And the reason why is that God is bigger than money. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now, this is one of Jesus' wonderful figures of speech where he's making a worldview statement. And the worldview statement is about God being, God being bigger than money. So, so think about it this way. Carl Sagan is the former, well, he's deceased now, but he was an astronomer and an atheist. And he says the cosmos is all that is, all that ever was, and all that ever will be. That's a worldview statement, right? What he's saying is that we live in this vast, closed universe, and there is no God from outside who can break in and provide. That's a worldview statement. And many people embrace that worldview. Tangible nature of money. I've got this much money. I've got to protect it. I've got to be anxious over it. There's not a God above who can provide, so I've got to be really worried and concerned about my money. That's a worldview understanding. So the worldview we live in is an open universe where God is very active in our lives. In him we live and move and we have our being. It's an open universe and God can provide anytime, any way, Sometimes miraculously, you know, there's a difference between God's basic providence and his miraculous providence. They both come from God. But sometimes God just provides in the normal course of life. Sometimes God 
breaks in and provides miraculously. Either way, we live in an open universe where God can do that. So uh, we had, Cindy and I had a situation a uh, number, of, number of years ago. It was a hot August afternoon. We faced, we faced a big need. Um, we faced a big need. It was, it was a need that was beyond our capacity to meet. And on this hot August afternoon, I am driving my car, and um, all of a sudden, through a really bizarre and unique set of circumstances, that need opens up. And uh, I can't go into all the details, but within one month, that need was partially met. Within three months, that need was completely met. And I never in a million years could have anticipated how that need got met. What happened in that, in, in that space? The God of the universe broke into our financial situation in a way that was truly miraculous. Never could have anticipated how that took place. I know some of you have those stories because I've heard stories like that from you. Some stories where things that should have broken down a decade ago didn't break down, and therefore you were spared having to make a new purchase. Or where some unusual thing took place, and, and now your finances were, were in a fundamentally different place. Edgemit was up here uh, on Thursday. We had, on Thursday, it told me a similar story. So here's the thing. We live in an open universe, and when we serve God, not money, God has the possibility to break in and change our financial situation. Now, we move to a second stage in Jesus' teaching. Jesus teaches about two crucial disciplines if we're going to serve God and not money and be confident, confidently generous. Confident generosity means replacing worry with trust in two stages, two stages. He says, starts with these words. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into the barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Jesus goes on. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, uh, O you of little faith? In these five verses, I discern two practical disciplines. The first we'll cover kind of quickly. The first discipline is the discipline of, of self-confrontation. It's the different discipline of self-confrontation. I want you to notice how kind Jesus is in these, these words. Are you not of more value than the birds, he says? That's a kind way of speaking. He doesn't say, you stupid idiots, you disciples. You guys, you guys are, are foolish. I condemn you for your lack of faith. He doesn't do that. He's kind. He's kind. And um, it's important at times to make 
kind and loving confrontations toward ourselves about our anxiety. A second confrontation is a little bit more direct. In verse 30, he says, Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? O you of little faith is not a sharply judgmental or critical statement. He's not saying, why are you worrying, worrying carrying on about this? You know, you, uh, it's, it's a kind and gentle confrontation. So what this says is that Jesus understands our weaknesses about money. He understands our concerns about money. He understands our obsessions over financial security. He understands that. And he's gently confronting his disciples And the discipline that is implied is that we would gently confront ourselves when we're anxious. Hasn't God provided in the past? Yeah. Will he not also provide again? Yeah. I had to confront myself recently because um, God had made a a provision for our family. uh, And I was overjoyed about that for a while. And then some months later, I said to myself, okay, so he did it then. He, I probably exhausted his grace. He's not going to do that again. He, he, he won't do it again because, like, I've exhausted that grace. That's not going to happen again. Uh, and I had to say, self, that is, that is not right. Self. What God did in his grace before, he can and will do in his grace again. It's okay. You can can trust him. Self-confrontation about our anxieties should take place whenever we find ourselves worried about money. Self, God has provided before, and he'll provide again. Trust him. Trust him. Self-confrontation is the first discipline. The second discipline is the discipline of meditating on God's power to provide. Now, I, I love what Jesus does next because he, he gives us some very vivid word pictures to help us, help us really, really get this and, and understand this. And the first picture he gives us is the picture of the birds of the air. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet, your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Now, when you see the birds, one thing that is, is really obvious, birds are not lazy. You, you never see a, a bird, you know, swinging in a hammock, you know, in the tree, going back and forth, you know, going, you know, I guess, I guess God will feed me. Now, bir- birds are not, not like that. Birds are always searching, always working, always finding things that they need and that their little ones need. Birds are always working. And what Jesus is saying in this illustration is that God tends to provide in the context of your purposeful work. That's the illustration. So the the idea is that God is going to provide as I continue to do the purposeful work that he's called me to do. Now, if, if that's the case, it's important for you to look at your work in, 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 in maybe a different way. In God's sovereignty, you have the job that you have. In God's providence, you have the work that he's given you to do. In God's overall scheme of things, 
he has given you a job. It's not just some random thing that you randomly got. God and his sovereignty has moved you in that direction. And the point of this illustration is that work as unto the Lord and trust him for the finances that come as you do that. Some of you may love your job. Some of you may be eh about your job. Some of you may hate your job. That's not the point of the, of the illustration. The, the point is, is that God tends to provide in the context of purposeful, productive, intentional labor. Notice how he says, yet your heavenly father feeds them. Wait a second, how's that happening? The bird's the one's doing the work, but God is the ultimate one who provides. So this is a, a challenge to do your work as unto the Lord and trust him for the income that, that comes. Here's the second illustration. It's the illustration of cubits and hours. This is a wonderful illustration, but it's very complicated. We'll start with the cubits. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Okay, the original language is a little bit less clear. Which of you, by being worried, is able to add a single cubit to your height? This is a double figure of speech where Jesus is talking about the length of your days, but what he's really talking about is the significance in the length of your days. Okay, so you're talking about the length of your days, but really it's the kind of significance that you have inside the length of your days. And so the, so the idea is if you worry about the future, will it help you become a fundamentally more significant person? And some people would say, yes, yes, it would. So I talk to a lot of people who say, you know, I got to my success not through a desire to succeed, but a fear of failure. My fear of failure was what drove me to my success. My fear of failure is what made me get up at five o'clock in the morning. My fear of failure was what made me write that extra memo, what made me stay late. What made me, made me make that extra phone call, I was so afraid of failure that I found myself surprisingly in a place of success. I've heard a lot of people talk about that. I've also heard people say, and I was miserable in the process, and I lost my family in the process, and I hurt a lot of people in the process. A lot of people, a lot of people, through worry, try to gain significance. And Jesus says, you got to think about your significance in a fundamentally different way, particularly when it comes to your significance with regard to money. Now he uses a, a second illustration that's exactly the same as the first, different illustration, same point. It's the illustration of flowers and clothing. He says, look at the flowers on the hillside. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, then will he not much more clothe you? Jesus is telling us that God provides for our clothing, but it's more than that. What he's saying is God provides what the clothing represents. And what is that? My significance. My significance. Because we do this in, in our world, you know, if you have a logo on your shirt that makes the shirt $200, or you have a logo on your shirt that makes the shirt $25 at Walmart, 
you made a, a declaration about your significance. And so he's talking about the significance of Solomon. You know, these days, um, these days, there, there's the verse there. These, these days, um, <clears throat> people talk about, about thread count. So here is the purple lily of the field, and purple was the color of kings. Solomon wore robes, you know, that were purple. And when we talk about thread count, we talk about, you know, burlap being, you know, a certain amount of thread count, but, but certain really nice fabrics or 500 thread count or 1,000 thread count or so on and so forth. And so what, what Jesus is saying is, th- think about what Solomon wore. The most significant man in the ancient world wore robes made of purple, beautiful purple, the purple of the color of kings. But he says that the lilies of the field, you know, are far more beautiful. So, so you, you think about a lily under a microscope looks like that versus the thread count of some other piece of cloth. You know, how God is the one who gives significance to the flowers of the field, to people, and the idea is that I need to place my significance in what God gives to me, not my net worth or not what my net worth represents in terms of my financial, my financial assets. What he's doing is he's telling us to trust God for what our clothing suggests, which is our significance. Now, he's giving us some new things to meditate on. So new thought number one is trust God through our work. New thought number two is trust God for our personal significance, okay? And what he's saying is rather than worrying about how much money we have so we can be significant, we trust him for the significance he bestows, and that's apprehended by by faith. Now we come to the third thing he wants us to meditate on, and it's about God as Father. Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. So what he wants us to meditate on is God as our providing Father, the character of our Father. And so the cool thing about this, I, this idea is that he's making a, making a statement, an emotional statement, look at my earthly father, he could be perfect or imperfect, whatever, but he was a provider. And so isn't God the ultimate provider? Now, how would you think about a, about a child? Imagine that you have a child, you come home, the child is so nervous walking back and forth. Son, what are you nervous about? Oh, Dad, I'm so nervous. Have, have, have you paid the mortgage yet? Yes, I have. What about, what about the insurance? Have you, have you paid for, for our, our insurance? Have you, have you made the reservations for, for my, my camp yet this year? Dad, I mean, I'm so concerned. Have you checked the oil in the car lately? Dad, I'm concerned about that. What, what about my car seat? Is my car seat up to, up to specifications? I hear these car seats, they expire after a while. Is my car seat expired? Now, if your child said that, what, what would you think about your child? He's not trusting in the character of me, his dad. Don't we do the exact same thing with God? We're so anxious about so many things. 
And the God of the universe is saying, I'm your dad. I'm your Abba Father. You can trust me for those things, those things that you need. And I love the idea that he uses the word heavenly father. Because the idea of heavenly father means that it's not like he's up, he's up there out in the heavens past the Andromeda galaxy. Remember, heavens is in the plural in these verses. And what that suggests is that God is present near you. He knows what you need. He knows the state of your finances. He knows all that. And he wants you to trust him. So let's, let's, put, this, let's put this together. We can confidently trust God without worry or fear because, number one, God generally provides through my work, so I'm going to work hard trusting him. Number two, I remember that God is the ultimate provider of my significance, so I rely upon him for that significance. And then I remember that he's my heavenly father, so I truly rest on him with all of my emotions. Then we move to the third phase in this um, way of being coming confidently generous, uh, this generosity grows as we ag- aggressively seek his kingdom. He closes with this really familiar verse, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. So let's m- remember what God's kingdom is. God's kingdom is the manifestation of his ruling presence both now and later. His kingdom's coming, we know that, but his kingdom is also now. And his kingdom now refers to the manifestation of his ruling presence in my life. What is he doing in my life? How is he working in my life? How is he moving in my life today, tomorrow, the next day? How has he been moving in my life lately? Last week, last month, last year. What is God doing as I'm observing my life? How do I interpret his kingdom presence in my life? And God's, God's heart for you is that you would respond by abiding in Christ, being filled with the Holy Spirit, walking in the light, and so on. But we have a choice about God's ruling presence. Either I'm oblivious to it, or I discern it and flow with it. And let me just tell you, if you're oblivious to God's ruling presence in your life, you will be anxious about money. If you're discerning about God's ruling presence, you're fellowshipping with him in the context of your need. And one of the amazing privileges of the Christian life is that I get to discern how involved I'm going to be in understanding the ruling presence of God. So if I want to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, what am I doing? I'm seeking God's presence in my life as we pray over money and resources. And then his righteousness means that I'm seeking his direction in my life. It doesn't mean just that I'm becoming more moral or more obedient. No, this, this means I'm, I'm seeking his direction. I'm seeking his path. I'm seeking his, his will for my life as I look at the future. One of the ways that I'm going to be doing this is through charitable giving. Remember, that's the context of this passage. So as I'm seeking his kingdom, I'm saying, God, you've given me these assets. I'm blessed to be a blessing. How do you want me to invest these assets into ministry? And then we have this amazing promise, and all these things will be added unto you. Let me just take one moment and say something about this promise. 
in the Bible, there are absolute promises and there are normative promises. Absolute promises are promises that are guaranteed under every circumstance. Normative promises are promises that function like a proverb. This is a normative promise. Normative promises mean that you trust that God will fulfill these promises in most every situation, but normative promises may be fulfilled differently in other situations. There, there are people who are being badly persecuted, say in Nigeria or in North Korea uh, or in China. And in their persecution, it doesn't seem as if all these things are being added to them. God may be, be providing for them in different ways, but this is a normative promise. So as I seek first his kingdom, my normative expectation is that I do this, God will then continue to provide for me so that I can continue to give. But it's normative. It's not the absolute promise that we see in other promises within, within, the, the, within the scriptures. So, so with that in mind, let's, let's look at the main point of this passage. You know, confident generosity comes when we focus on the character of God as our provider, when we respond to his specific leading, and when we do this as a pattern for our life. Okay, so let's take a look at some, at some takeaways. Let's apply confident generosity to this season of our church, especially as we're in the second to last week in our series um, on transforming the next generation. Here's my first takeaway. My first takeaway, and this is very specific, is please pray for next week's service at Grace. When you come in uh, next week, there will be a commitment card on the chair. And so what we've been talking about and leading up to in our stewardship campaign is that you would um, take that commitment card and look at that and prayerfully assess, how do I want to participate in this current stewardship campaign. Um, this is a close-up of what it looks like. Uh, part of this is prayerfully, humbly thinking about giving out of regular income. Part of this is the idea that maybe I've got something that I can give other than cash. And I've circled a note at the bottom. That note on the bottom says this is a statement of intent and maybe altered as circumstances warrant. So our humble request is that you would pray over next week's service as our final series in our uh, Transforming the Next Generation sermon series, and that you would prayerfully think about this week about how you would participate in that. You heard the interviews, and um, there's a lot of excitement generated about what God is doing in this new facility. We're just asking, our humble request is that you would pray over this between now and next week. And in the service next week, you'll have an opportunity to fill out that card and put it in a receptacle in different parts of the auditorium. My second uh, takeaway is that you would anticipate what would be added to you and to grace through your participation. That's where the adventure of the Christian life is so awesome. Because it, it, if I'm seeking first the kingdom, what follows me? All these things being added to me. So part of, part of what I do and the way I think about stewardship is I think, seek the kingdom, and then, oh, Lord, you added this to me. Oh, Lord, you added this to me. 
Awesome, Lord, you added this to me. As that happens, you're gonna have a story to tell. And our plea is that you would tell us your story. I've heard some really cool stories, uh, giving stories uh, recently. And those giving stories uh, increase my faith. My plea to you is that you would tell us your giving stories, how you gave, how God added to you in the context of your giving. Let's stand for a closing prayer.